the Blaze Radio Network. On demand. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slider Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. So we have a lot of, I, I think, really important things to do today. Some foundational uh, background knowledge that when I learned this stuff really changed how I view uh, everything. Uh, it, it, this all makes sense in a second here. Let me, um, let's back it up. So it's about culture. The theme of the hour is culture and culture matters. Went to a 4th of July party the other day, asked a couple friends what they were reading, and two of my best friends friends were reading the same book called Black Rednecks and White Liberals. Black Rednecks and White Liberals. And one of my buddies said it was by a, a black economist. And I said, I said, Thomas Sowell? He said, ah, oh, yes, that's it, Thomas Sowell. Oh, Thomas Sowell's, you know, one of the greatest minds of our era. This, this is really important. It's not just that he's black. Uh, he's a genius. <laughs> he's a titan. Uh, an intellectual heavyweight of the last 100 years. Now, I haven't read the book cover to cover. But the gist of what he did in this book was... And I look forward to reading the whole thing straight through. But what he did was track the migration patterns of people from Europe to America at dur- during the colonial stages. And when you track migration patterns with precision, the different subcultures that we have in America make a lot more sense. For example... Where did the colonists come from? The first colonists in America, the first sets of colonists, where did they come from? I think if you ask most people, they're going to say Europe. And that's right. Uh, But let's be a little more specific. Where in Europe? Most people will say England. That's right too. But Sol's more precise. He found out that most of the Britons who migrated to colonial Massachusetts came from within a 60 mile radius of the town of Haverhill in East Anglia. So one specific town. Now those are the colonists who went to the colonial Massachusetts. Most of the Southern colonists came from the Northern badlands of England, which was this no man's land between Scotland and England. And from the highlands of Ulster County, Ireland, which were all very similar areas. In the words of Thomas Sowell, all of these fringe areas were turbulent, if not lawless regions. These, these rural Scots, which again later became the southern colonists, they lived pretty rough and tumble life. They, they lived in the same shelters with their animals and stuff like that. Those people of the, of the Scottish Badlands and from Haverhill and East Anglia were very different people. So when these two groups of people moved to the Northern and Southern colonies, they took their home subcultures with them. 
So let me quote Thomas Sowell here about the Southerners or the people who would become Southerners. He said, quote, the cultural values and social patterns prevalent among Southern whites included the aversion to work, proneness to violence, neglect of education, sexual promiscuity, drunkenness, lack of entrepreneurship, reckless searches for excitement, lively music and dance, and a style of religious oratory marked by strident rhetoric, unbridled emotions, and flamboyant imagery. And this oratory style carried over into the political oratory of the region in both the Jim Crow era and the Civil Rights era, and has continued on in our own times among black politicians, preachers, and activists. Also, touchy pride, vanity, and boastful self-dramatization were also part of this redneck culture among, among people from the regions of Britain where the civilization was the least developed. Northern England, Scotland, part of, Scot- uh, part of Scotland and Ireland. Are you with me so far? So Sol goes on and says that before there was such thing as black pride, there was cracker pride. And cracker pride was this touchiness about anything that might be perceived as a personal slight. And Yankees would look at Southerners and they were baffled at this. They couldn't understand. Yankees could, Northerners could not understand why, why the stupid Southerners were always fighting each other for no reason. By the way, the term cracker, you know where the term cracker came from? So most people think it came from uh, slavery era because the white man cracked the whip. So they were the cracker. It came well before that. Cracker was a term that was used in the Scottish Highlands to describe the poor farmers. The poor farmers who were pushed further and further inland where the land was terrible. And these crackers, the backwoods people of Northern England and Scotland, they were called Pinelanders, corn crackers, or just crackers. So the crackers from Northern England moved to the South and they took their cracker culture with them. They took their cracker pride well before slavery. The differences between these two groups of people, not only, I mean, I think, I hope it's obvious the difference, but it wasn't lost on the people of that era either. There was a boatload of these Ulster Scots that landed in Boston and the people of Boston wouldn't let them unload. <laughs> so like, oh, hey, great to see you guys. Where are you from? Oh, we're from, uh, from Ulster County. Oh, now back in the boat. Get, get out of here. You're not, no, not allowed. Back, go back where you go. I don't care where you go, but you can't stay here. Like that. There was another boat of, of Ulster Scots that landed in Philly. And the people of Philadelphia made them settle in western Pennsylvania as a buffer between them and the Indians. So there were, there were the, the, the Yankees, the people from East Anglia, uh, did not want to mingle with these crazy folk from North England. They didn't want to. They didn't want to mingle with them in England, and they don't want to mingle with them over here in the New World either. One last story about this, and then we'll make it relevant. When I say uh, cheese, what state do you think of? When I say milk and cheese, what state do you think of? Yes. Why do we all think of that state? Why do we all think of Wisconsin? Because that's where the German settlers migrated. But that's not all. 
there was actually more cattle in the South than in Wisconsin and the Midwest. So how did the Midwest become known as the dairy capital? It's because the German culture of farming was to build fences and huge barns for livestock that they could eat in, they could feed during the winter and stay healthy during the winter. The Southerners had more cattle, but their culture of raising cattle in Scotland, which they brought over with them, was to let the cattle roam free in the winter. There were no fences and there were no barns. So in the South, by the end of the winter, the cattle either died or wasn't healthy enough to produce a lot of milk. And this was true all the way until the 30s. In the 30s, cattle farmers in the South would only make enough milk to feed themselves. 26% of the country's dairy cows were in the South, but they only made 7% of the country's dairy products. Culture. Culture matters. Same thing with farming. So the people who, far, uh, who uh, landed in the Northeast, the colonists in the Northeast, they came from a part of England where hard work was valued. So when they would clear the land, they would cut down the trees, but they would also uproot the tree stumps. Right? They would dig deep, get rid of the tree stumps, fill it back in, and then plow over it. The Southerners came from a part of England that was, did not like hard work. So they would cut down the trees to clear the land, but they would leave the stumps and they would just plow around them. So the farms in the South were much less profitable. Southerners hated work because they came from a part of the world where they hated work. Also, the Scots didn't value education like the people from East Anglia who settled in Boston and the Northeast. Scots who settled in the South didn't value education as much. This is why Thomas Sowell and his personal experience, he was a black man growing up in the South, North Carolina. He was in the top of his class in North Carolina. But then he moved to Harlem and was in the bottom of his class. Harlem back then had excellent schools. So even, even to Southerners who could afford it, they just didn't buy books. It wasn't as important. Culture. Culture matters. Culture is everything. Now, Thomas Sowell takes this and he applies it to race today and black culture in particular. And his point is that while whites in the South have tended to move away from this culture, Black people in the South have adopted it and embraced it. Even language. The words axe instead of ask. Dis instead of this. Across instead of across. These are not black words. I mean, we may call it Ebonics today or whatever, but these are not black words. These are not African words. This is the way that people talked in Scotland. In Northern England and Scotland, they said axe across dis. And they brought that over them with, uh, over here with them. White people tended to move away from it, but black people have taken it over and retained it. So we look at, we, we say, you know, axe, axe, but black person may say axe. And we think that that's like a black thing. No, it's a very, 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 very white thing. <laughs> it's, at least it started with very, very, very white people in Northern England. Isn't that amazing? I want to take a break here. I hope that was a, a, a good background here. But now, again, I want to bring it to today and make this incredibly relevant because when you see how much culture matters and how ingrained in it, in us it is, uh, well, I think then you see how much it, it matters, maybe even more than uh, you thought before. Bring it all together next. one 888 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to... 
Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. is Mike Slater. Culture is everything. That's my point here. It's all about culture and culture can change and some cultures should change. There's no reason to be proud of your culture if it results in bad outcomes. There's no reason to embrace a culture if it results in worse things. For an example, World War I, there were some uh, mental tests that were done, some intellectual, not IQ tests, but something like it. Whites in southern states where this culture that we just described this 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 southern culture that was from the scottish highlands culture where that still existed amongst white people too for the you know most white people um so whites in southern states performed worse than black people in northern states so it's not a race thing it's a culture thing the blacks in the north northern culture did better on these mental tests than whites in the southern culture Nothing to do with race. It was the culture. There was another study of uh, black and white soldiers from World War II who married German women and lived in Germany and raised their kids in Germany. And the study looked at the IQs of their children. And the IQs of the, the kids of black soldiers or white soldiers was the exact same. Because they grew up in the same culture in Germany. There wasn't the split like there was here or there was at the time in America between the North and the South. Can we play clip uh, 1574? This is Thomas Sowell. Quote, quoting intellectuals and race, Professor Flynn concluded that the reason was that the offspring of black soldiers in Germany, and now you're quoting Professor Flynn, grew up in a nation with no black subculture. Close quote. Which means what? Which means they experienced exactly the same expectations. Is this the... They- no, no, no. The expectations are external. The culture in which they grew up with was, was not the culture in which black kids grew up in America today. So they had... There's no gangster rap. In Ger- uh, 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 that, that was pervasively uh, uh, available in Germany. It is so- time. It is time that we identify and eliminate different subcultures in America. Not, 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 not by killing the people who are in them, but by encouraging people to get out of these subcultures because they're broken. And I want to talk a lot about the brokenness of these cultures, and I'm going to be very, very specific. I'm not going to talk in broad, general, vague terms. I'm going to be very specific about the things that are broken and how they're broken and prove that they're broken, if you can stay with me here. Let me give you some examples of about business ownership. So people today will look at the lack of locally owned businesses in, in uh, you know, black neighborhoods and blame racial discrimination or poverty or some such external thing. But in the 1920s, looking at Harlem, there were a ton of black owned businesses in the 1920s. A lot more racism back then. The thing is, most of those black businesses in Harlem in the 20s were owned by black people from the Caribbean, not black people from the South. 
prison population in the 1930s, blacks were overrepresented, as we're often told, in prison. But black people from the West Indies, from the Caribbean, were underrepresented based on their share of the population. One last example. Seoul says that in 1970, black families from the Caribbean living in America had 28% higher incomes than American blacks. The second generation of Caribbean families, black families, had incomes 58% higher than American blacks. So hold on. If, if that's true, that it can't be about race or racism because they're also black. What's the difference? Culture. They come from a different culture. Now today, Black Lives Matter, and, and, and it's really not even Black Lives Matter. It's, it's a, a elite white intellectuals, which we'll get to coming up too, but blame slavery for everything. For all the problems in the black community, it's racism and the ultimate racism is slavery. Uh, and that's just not true. There may, there may be aspects of that which may be true, but it's not the full picture by any stretch of the imagination. We've said this before that, check this out, two and a half times as many white Europeans were taken as slaves by North African Muslims as Africans were taken as slaves in America. Two and a half times as many white people in Europe were taken as slaves by North African Muslims as Africans were taken as slaves in America. So under 400,000 uh, Africans were sent to America as slaves, and it's a, a million white people were taken as slaves by North African Muslims. But that's a bit of an aside. The marriage, we'll look at slavery and just after slavery, the marriage rate of black families just after slavery was higher than white families at the time. The marriage rate of black families was higher than white families at the time. And today it's abysmal. Now, if you look at the disintegration of the black family, it didn't start, slavery couldn't even kill the black family. And the era after slavery and Jim Crow and all the rest could not kill the black family. But you know what did? 1960. The rise of the welfare state. The poverty rate of two parent black families has always been in the single digits. Let me say it again. The poverty rate of two parent black families has always been in the single digits. It's the single moms and the deadbeat dads. That's a new phenomenon in the last few decades. And it has nothing to do with race. Nothing to do with race. It is culture and it has to stop. We can't be afraid to identify it. And we can't be afraid to say this has to stop because, and to go back to black pride, there's nothing black about it. It didn't, it's not from Africa. It's, it's not a black, it's not from the Caribbean. That's not the culture of most blacks in America, like the black community. That's not black. It's from North England, the Scottish Badlands and Ulster County, Ireland. Which again is very, very, very white. Nothing to do with race. It's a culture, it's a bad culture. And it has to stop. Got lots more coming up next. Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. 
You're listening to Mike Slater. All right, let's see. <laughs> uh, let's do this. All right, so there's two ways to stop the broken culture that, again, today, and there's a lot of different subcultures in America, right? But today, the one that I'm speaking of in particular is, is the black subculture, uh, which, again, has nothing to do with race because, as we've been explaining, and I'm not going to do this anymore, but it didn't, it's nothing, there's nothing uniquely black about it. Right? <laughs> it's not permanently impressed on black people. It did not come from black people. It is not, you know... It, um, uh, born within black people. It's not, it's not from black people. It started in Northern England and Scotland and has been embraced by black people. But just like it could be embraced, it means it can also be rejected, which is what it needs to be. So there's two ways to stop this. First, there's a prevalence in the black community to disparage black people who, quote, act white. There's a black club at Stanford, and the clip I want to play next, Peter Thiel talks about this, who, it's a, it's a club that bans black people who don't act black enough. That's absurd. So when people say to black kids, don't act white, don't study, don't work hard, all that, that not only is obviously obviously damaging and destructing, but it makes no sense. Because this so-called black culture that they're trying to keep that person in didn't start as a black culture. It's not a black culture. It's a bad culture. The second thing we have to do is to stop the race baiters. And I want to play a clip of Thomas Sowell coming up in the next segment that will change your paradigm big time on that. But before I get to Thomas Sowell, I want to play this clip from Peter Thiel. So this is a speech that Peter Thiel gave uh, 1996. He wrote a book a year that, that year or a year before uh, about multiculturalism and diversity. It's a five-minute clip, and I don't like playing five-minute clips. But I couldn't find a place to stop it. <laughs> it's just so good. Peter Thiel, by the way, uh, PayPal, the other big, big Silicon Valley guy. He's the one who spoke at the at Trump's Republican convention thing, right? But this was a long time ago. Again, this is 1996, well before uh, Trump was running for president. So um, this is about the lie, the fraud that is multiculturalism and diversity. Enjoy. Uh, sorry, 1575. Who is immensely accomplished in every way. Yes. Right. Uh, That's not the right one. Do we have, you know, you know what? I'm wrong. I'm wrong here. Sorry. We have a, sorry, everyone. This is live radio and we have a ton of clips. Um, Let me, I sent over the wrong Peter Thiel clip. I apologize. Let's skip to 76. Is that cool? Let's go to 1576. In terms of political leaders, all the all the incentives politically are for, for black leaders to blame all problems in the black community on the larger society. And that enables them to take on the role of being the defender of the black community against enemies, which in turn uh, creates the situation in which many blacks don't feel that anything that they do is going is to help themselves unless it's done politically as, as a group. That there's no point. I mean, why, why would you, if you believe what, the, what, that's what they say, why would you want to knock yourself out in the school knowing that the man is not going to let you get anywhere? Well, I, one of the most pathetic things I heard in recent years was a young black man saying that, you know, at one point he thought he would join the Air Force and become a pilot. 
And then he says he realized that the white man is not going to let a black man become a pilot. And he was saying this decades after the Tennessee Airmen had established their reputation in combat in Europe. You know, but, he, but the hopelessness, hopelessness is, is one of the big products of the, of the race industry. That, that you, have, you have no chance. I remember giving a talk at Marquette, and at the end of the talk, among the questions that was asked, a young, again, young black man got up and he said, even though I am graduating from Marquette University, what hope is there for me? And uh, having gone through college when I was in the 50s, I don't remember any blacks saying that in the 1950s, when there was a lot more obstacles to overcome than there were when this guy is graduating from Marquette. But you, but you have to pr pr produce that kind of feeling in order to serve the interests of those in the race industry. Mm. Gosh, he's right. He said it's pathetic. Isn't it sad? Isn't it sad you have a student at, at Marquette University, a, major, a nice, great four-year university saying, I can't make it in the world because I'm black. Who says that? Who, or who told that kid that? The race baiters and elite progressive whites. That's who told him that. That's how destructive and damaging. They are peddling poison. We say this a lot. We say these, these, they're poison peddlers. What's the poison they're peddling? Hopelessness. They're peddling hopelessness. My point is that this culture that, that elite whites and people like Jesse Jackson and the rest are keeping people stuck in is 100% not necessary. It's not necessary. It's damaging, it's destructive, and it's not necessary. This hopelessness that is being instilled in kids unnecessarily has to be countered with the truth. And the very first truth is there's nothing black about this culture. Let me, let me, let me read this one more time. Let me, uh, where we got... Okay. The, one of the truths is there's nothing black about the black culture of today. There's nothing uniquely black about it. So this is Thomas Sowell again in his book, uh, Black Rednecks and, and White Liberals, talking about the culture of Southern whites early in our country's history, which again was the culture of Northern England, Scottish Badlands, whatever. So I'm going to read this here. And you can see this being applied to, or you, you could, as I'm reading this, you can think, oh, well, you're just, you're describing like a black subculture today. No, <laughs> I, I, this is Thomas Sowell describing the Southern white subculture in the 17 and 1800s. And I want to read this again, just to prove that there's nothing black about the black subculture. So here it is. The uh, cultural values and social patterns prevalent among Southern whites included aversion to work, proneness to violence, neglect of education. It sounds like I'm describing inner city Chicago, sexual promiscuity, drunkenness, lack of entrepreneurship, reckless searches for excitement, lively music and dance, and a style of religious oratory marked by strident rhetoric, unbridled emotions, and flamboyant imagery. Touchy pride, vanity, boastful self-dramatization. And let me finish the rest of his sentence. We're also part of this redneck culture among people from regions of Britain. This black subculture has to die. But first, we have to be able to identify it and, and be able to articulately and intelligently describe why and how it's broken 
And I think maybe a first way of doing that is to describe is, is to say it's it's nothing to be proud of. It's nothing to hold on to. And there's nothing black about it. All right, I'll come back with that Peter Thiel clip. Sorry for that uh, that mistake. We'll do this next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On The Blaze Radio Network. I found the right clip. I apologize. So this is Peter Thiel back in 96 talking about his book uh, specifically about multiculturalism and diversity and how that is a giant fraud. Enjoy. And I think um, the most critical point I want to make to you today is that these are euphemisms. Multicultural. Let's start with multiculturalism. Multiculturalism has next to nothing to do with the study of other cultures. I will repeat it. If there's a single thing I'd like you to take with you today, it is that multiculturalism has next to nothing to do with the study of other cultures. It is That may be a worthwhile thing to do in an increasingly global world, but that's not what it is about. You do not see students protesting on college campuses demanding um, missionary postings in third world countries to learn more about other societies. You do not have protests demanding more rigorous foreign language requirements. Uh, where people will protest uh, to learn Chinese or Swahili or Russian or anything of that sort. Again, it has nothing to do with other cultures. The same, I think, is true of diversity. This is another one of these incredibly misleading, euphemistic terms. It does not, to put it charitably, have much to do with a diversity of ideas. You do not have real diversity on a college campus when you have a campus full of people who look different but think alike. And again, I, I, I... I think this is very, very important as a starting point in framing the issue. Well, the question then becomes, well, what are these things really about? What is multiculturalism really about? And I will suggest to you that the single most important theme that runs through much that goes under the rubric of multicultural is that it is anti-Western. It is not non-Western. It is still focused very much on our own society, but it is primarily a vehicle for denouncing it. Uh, at Stanford University, which is the one I'm the most familiar with, but I think is certainly no exception to the rule, uh, the debate over multiculturalism in the late 80s started with a protest. The protest was against Western culture. The notorious chant was, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western culture's got to go. It was not a demand for inclusion. It was a demand for exclusion. Now, why does Western culture have to go? What is the problem with multiculturalism? And what problem does it have? The basic problem, the basic claim is the West is uniquely bad because it is racist, it is sexist, it is oppressive in a variety of other ways. Um, and not only is it, does it have all these problems, but it has them in a way that is far worse than other societies. That's where I think things get very, very problematic. The uh, multicultural educator at Stanford University liked to go around saying, I started looking for racism everywhere and I started finding racism everywhere. And indeed, he did. If you, if you start looking for anything everywhere, you will start finding it everywhere. If you are a feminist, and if you believe that everything is, that is longer than it is wide is a symbol of male oppression, then you will start finding sexism everywhere. If you, if you, want, to, um, if you want to find baseball everywhere, you can find baseball everywhere. 
And similarly, he could find racism everywhere. Let me just give you a couple of examples of how this process played out. Uh, there was an ongoing debate over boycotting table grapes. Why, what, and that, the fact that table grapes were served in student residences was viewed as evidence of racism. Why? Well, because most of the grape pickers in California happened to be Latino farm workers, and they were exposed to dangerous pesticides, supposedly. Now, the fact that a grape boycott would get rid of their jobs was sort of irrelevant because, again, many of these things involve more moral posturing than real substantive concerns over these issues. There was similarly a debate over, over what students are politically correct, politically incorrect. And again, if we want to talk about examples of political correctness, the uh, Black Student Union at Stanford for a number of years maintained something called a blacklist of students that were insufficiently black. Uh, of black students who were insufficiently black, which meant that they did not have the ideological views that multiculturalism claims all blacks must hold. It, multiculturalism does not have to do with biology, it has to do with ideology. And the ideology across the board is this far left ideology. Now, I'll tell you what the problem is with looking for racism everywhere. Because when you start looking for racism everywhere and you start finding racism everywhere, it's only a very small step to finding racists everywhere. Now, there's nothing wrong with that if those racists are really out there, but I'm going to suggest to you that they really aren't. The problems of racism, sexism, other forms of oppression have been vastly exaggerated, and as a result, people get unjustly accused. A culture of complaint leads to a culture of blame, and that is ultimately the real problem with it. Um, let me just make one last comment, then we'll go on uh, from here. The, the other point that, and along these lines, let me suggest to you that multiculturalism and political correctness must be thought of as different sides of the same coin. The multicultural side is the side where we look for the victims. The politically correct side is the side where we go after the victimizers. The two are inextricably interconnected. You are not going and that is why you will find the people who are the most multicultural are also the most politically correct. I do think things have gone way too far in the other direction today, where we have this sort of scorched earth strategy being waged against our own society. And I think, I think we have to find some sort of balance between the two. Now, I, I, it's always difficult to know exactly where you draw the balance, but I'd suggest to you one indicator, and I think one very important salient feature is, of course, that this whole multicultural debate over looking at racism, sexism, other forms of oppression is something that could only take place within the context of Western civilization, within the context of the civilization where individual rights, individual human rights became possible. And multiculturalists go too far when they forget that the very rhetoric that animates their debate is the rhetoric of the West. And they we always stop. forget that. We can stop here. Uh, there's so much good. I'm sorry. Like, I, I hate playing five-minute clips, but that's, that's, that's so good. Uh, Peter Thiel right there. So I love at the end there, he said, multiculturalism looks for victims. I got an example of that I want to share coming up. Political correctness goes after the victimizers, right? The oppressors, the white man, the Western culture, et cetera. And it's really important to know that this fetish for multiculturalism isn't about learning about other cultures. It's about killing Western culture. If it was about learning about other cultures, that'd be great. No, no problem there. It's a wonderful thing. It's not. It's about killing, ending, villainizing, demeaning Western culture. And diversity is not about diversity. It's about eliminating the white man. Evergreen State College is a great example of this. We're not going to go all into it again, but remember the day of absence? They've had it for decades now where black people wouldn't show up on campus for a day. But this year they decided to, instead of just not showing up to campus, to forcibly remove white people from campus. 
There's a systematic elimination of Western canon, Shakespeare, et cetera, great art and artists of our Western culture because it's Western and because it's from predominantly white men. That is dangerous, wrong, absurd, and needs to stop. Do not believe this multiculturalism nonsense. Learn about other cultures, but also learn about Western culture and understand why... I've come to the conclusion, and you might have come to this conclusion as well, that Western culture is the best of them all. It's okay to think that. It's okay to say that. We got more about this coming up next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network.